welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, buried under more than 12 inches of snow, but it's not so bad because Rise got it a lot worse. <laughs> you know, it's Minnesota in February, so I guess this is what we should expect when we live here. <laughs> Indeed. So we're going to do a show here with uh, Rye Marcatilio McCracken, our, uh, our crack investigator. <laughs> All of a sudden, like, I'm just feeling self-conscious about calling you a crack investigator. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. We also uh, have Sean Gonsalves. Uh, welcome, Sean. I am in the house. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we're going to talk about a story that you did right off the bat. Um, uh, Sean does uh, a lot of reporting, writing, editing, and communications work for us. And we are going to start by talking about Project Waves, a cool project in Baltimore to connect uh, low-income apartment buildings. Uh, then we're going to talk about West Des Moines and their conduit model quickly. And then we're going to end with what I assure you will be the most interesting discussion about a website redesign that you've heard in a while. Um, really, we're going to talk about kind of some of the stuff we have cooking and where things are going and, and less about how this nearly drove uh, Ryan Sean to leave the best jobs they've ever had. <laughs> no, you don't have to comment on that. I'm just going to that's my that's how I'm going to imagine this worked out. And uh, let's start with uh, Project Waves. Um, Sean, um, uh, I feel like uh, this is something that we knew was coming after we had a great visit with them. Uh, was it now three, four weeks ago? In the last few weeks. And it was a great visit. Um, well, Project Waves is a nonprofit organization that was founded in 2018, looking at the massive digital divide that exists in the city of Baltimore, something on the order of 96,000 of the 237,000 or so residents of the city. Right. So like do one out of three, one internet. out of four people. Yeah. Do not have a home internet uh, subscription. And that's obviously a big problem, especially for people who care about those things in the city. And so um, when we went to Baltimore, we got to meet with the folks uh, that run uh, Project Waves and as well as the Digital Harbor Foundation, who was one of their main sponsors uh, in getting that uh, Project Waves off the ground in 2018. So we were at the... Um, the rec center that they converted into a tech center, the Digital Harbor Foundation did. And then we went over to uh, Holland's house, which is one of the five apartment buildings that Project Waves is serving by essentially running fiber to the premise, to the building or to the to the various buildings that they do serve, and then repurposing the uh, coaxial cable that's in those buildings to deliver gig speed internet service for free for about a thousand households in the city. Um, so it's fascinating. And the the profile that I put together um, is a little different than some of the stories that we write. It was, uh, it, it, we're calling it like local community broadband champions. And so, whereas we focus a lot on the technology and the construction and financing of community network builds, this particular piece focuses more on really the personalities of the people who make it happen this one, of course, being in Baltimore. So we focused on Devin Weaver, who is an amazing, bright, warm, 28-year-old uh, network engineer, a, a, a native of the city of Baltimore, um, who uh, grew up there and you know went to work in the IT field, worked for Expedient for a number of years running. Right, he left Baltimore to do that work, right? He did. And 
over that time, not only did he learn a lot, but he also got a chance to travel around the country and see a lot of the internet infrastructure that exists and started to really be troubled by the fact that why isn't this stuff in my city? And, uh, you know, through a series of, of sort of incremental decisions that he made in terms of, you know, wanting to build an internet exchange in Baltimore, but that kind of fizzled out, but a high school made of his, um, that actually was the one who founded Project Waves, and they had kept in touch over the years and share common interests, said, you know, you should come work with us, and which Devin ended up doing. And now he is the director of engineering there, and he is the one who really, or as the director of Project Waves, Samantha Musgrave says, he's the meat and potatoes of what they do. So you and I were in town for the ILSR retreat, and um, and the the whole team was, but the way the flights worked out, you, Emma, and I were able to go meet with them in person, grab a lunch, learn a lot more about Digital Harbor Foundation, the great work that they're doing, the really interesting backstory there that I think will probably be a future story, um, you know, and then got this cool tour uh, to see how it actually works. And um, And I thought it was just, it was a really interesting story. And I think a reminder of of how important it is for communities to step up, right? I feel yes. like one of the reasons that we see communities not step up and do this is they think eh, it might be hard and we might not succeed. And I think, you know, from our conversation with Samantha and Devin uh, and Andrew as well, who who runs the, the Digital Harbor Foundation, uh, I would say that they probably would say that their wireless efforts to solve this problem did not succeed the way they wanted them to. And what do they do? They adjust it, right? They, 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 and that's what I love about the story is that you're you're exactly right. I mean, the, the the wireless network they stood up, you know, they were pretty candid in saying that it wasn't really meeting the real needs that folks had. There were different, you know, issues that they had in terms of, uh, you know, reliability and, and, and what have you. And, and, but they, that didn't make them say, well, forget it. This is a waste of time and effort. They, they adjusted, like you said, and, and figured out a way to repurpose the wiring that already exists in these buildings. You know, one of the things that's amazing too, is it, it wasn't something that they thought was too hard to do. They also didn't, you know, they weren't scared away by some of the, you know, the financing. I mean, of course they get, you know, 100% philanthropic contributions run the organization. But once they built the actual infrastructure and got the fiber to the building, their actual operating expenses, their average cost per month per user is 16 bucks. Yeah. And I just think it's fascinating to know that, you know, it's like once they built the infrastructure and this is with built-in customer support. And, um, and so there's That's lots of most of the costs. Yeah. And, and there's lots of folks now there that, are now getting internet for the first time. And it's just heartwarming really to hear about the difference that it's making in folks' lives. Right now you said it was free. And I, I always, I hate that word. Uh, it's like the word access <laughs> to, in, in that, like, you know, yes. you never really know quite what it means, uh, but uh, it is, there is no charge to the resident, but uh, there are different uh, ways in which uh, someone ends up paying for that one way yes. or another. Yes. And in fact, um, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, Samantha talks about is how she thinks that this is, you know, that there's a lot that other cities could learn from in terms of working with housing authorities and going into what she calls kind of the low hanging fruit of going into affordable housing buildings, repurposing the existing wire and, and, and delivering the kind of connectivity at low or no cost for a number of the residents. But also she talked about the importance of 
city officials and housing officials being really proactive in terms of providing things like the documentation of, of folks that are living in their affordable housing buildings to qualify for the affordable connectivity program and then tap into those funds, which of course would would obviously help you know sustain those networks you know moving forward. Right. This I would I would pull this into something that we had done a few weeks ago, the Building for Digital Equity event that we did with Kim McKinley co-hosting Utopia Fiber sponsoring. Something that I don't know if ever got written up, Sean. Uh, something that you know may might be a good story to get on our page and get some folks to view the uh, the live stream after it happened. We've got that archived. Um, our two events from last year both um, have have been viewed. One of them two thousand times. One of them three thousand times. So uh, people are enjoying those events. Uh, at any rate, Shana England made a great point talking about the LA Digital Equity Coalition, uh, something that I know people want to know more about because she really piqued people's interest. And she made the point, this is a, this is an issue of, of power and politics. It is mm -hmm. not an issue of technology. And I would just come back to what Samantha said, what Devin has demonstrated, which is that if we want to connect uh, people living in public housing, particularly in apartment buildings, the technology is there. Right. The money is there. What we need is creativity and people to get off their butts and do it. And and I would I would lay some of the blame with the public housing officials who I think haven't understood the opportunities that are out there. Now, they have so much that they have to deal with. I sort of understand that they've been underfunded and whatnot. But frankly, if we have elected leaders that want to solve this problem, there is nothing to stop us from solving it in most places when we're talking about apartment buildings. And, you know, you make a good point. I mean, you know, these, these officials are are dealing with a lot, but certainly um, as it relates to the ACP, it would be a lot more efficient and I'm sure easier for them to deal with, you know, getting lots more folks enrolled than 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 individuals who, um, you know, have no real experience in this area. And 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 there's all kinds of hoops that uh, that you have to jump through. And one of those is is essentially proving that you're eligible for the benefit and you know, housing officials can go a long way in helping that happen. That's right. And the FCC should really make this easier. I mean, one of the things that I've seen and I think we'll talk about and net inclusion, which is where we will be when this show airs. Um, I think people will be talking about how ACP as a program seems designed to discourage people from getting involved in it because of how hard it is to sign up and, and yeah. how unnecessarily hard it is. <laughs> Uh, to sign up. Uh, we should have, you know, the one of the things that they told us, you didn't put this in that article. And by the way, people should be checking out this article as soon as you're done listening to this podcast. It's at communitynets.org, or you could go to muninetworks.org, our old name for our site. They all end you, all roads lead to Rome. Uh, there's a lot <laughs> of different places you can go to end up at communitynets.org. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. Um, people should go there. It's on the front page. It'll be up there for a bit. Uh, but But Samantha noted that there is not a single person they can offer service to who is not eligible for ACP. Right. Every address that they serve, every single person who lives in those buildings is qualified, but they have to go through hours of work per resident to get them signed up. And that is a total failure. And this is why people hate government, right? Like <laughs> here we have a government program that is so important. People should love it. And instead, people have a bad taste in their mouth because of how it's implemented. We should not be standing for this. Well said. Yep. So with that, uh, Rye, is there anything that you want to poke before we uh, we go on to something that, that you have a little bit more experience with? Uh, the only thing I'll mention is uh, related to the ACP. Either shortly thereafter or by the time this episode airs, our um, revamped version two of our ACP dashboard should be live um, with um, 
everything from when we think the money is going to run out to a better look at all the all that all the different households that are eligible by different uh, methods and means and and we're looking at you know for anybody not familiar tens of millions of households more than more than 50 million households eligible for this benefit of which less than a third it seems like are taking advantage remind remind us again what the new elements that are going to be added to the dashboard yeah, yeah, so, so it's acpdashboard.com, just to be clear for people that want to remind themselves. And and I just want to say I really appreciate Christine doing the, the hard work to get uh, the new data, some of the new features up. Uh, I know that it's been it's been hard work. Uh, so um, don't don't when you see how cool it is, uh, definitely, you know, say a little prayer for uh, for Christine in your head. <laughs> and Emma, too. She's doing all the, yes. lots of the implementation work. So. Um, so, yes, the the version two will have some more nuanced data that it's pulling from um, and should be uh, what we think is the most accurate uh, snapshot of all the households who are eligible through the however many, half a dozen or slightly more different ways that households can qualify, um, as well as all the households that are taking advantage. Uh, and then the other big addition to this version two is an amount spent and uh, eligible households enrolled by congressional district across the United States. And so folks will be able to go to their congressional district, click on it and see not only how many households are eligible, but how many are enrolled and how much money has been spent in that congressional district um, since the start of the program. And what people should do is they should go click on that and then send that information to their representative and say, hey, we really need to make sure this doesn't run out of money next year in 2024. Look at the benefits this is bringing to your district. Let's make sure that this is continued, uh, you know, to make sure that uh, people are still well served. We have reservations about how wise it is to rely on this program alone, but this program is necessary while we sort out better investments to solve the various challenges we face. Well said. Yeah, no doubt. Although, you know, certainly, you know, one of the one of the strong arguments, I think, for for maintain, I mean, of course, it is a coupon, so to speak, or a, a Band-Aid uh, to a long term problem. But there will probably always be a segment of the population that will need some form of subsidy to pay for Internet service, even when it, even when, you know, the prices are relatively affordable. Yes, I think that's right. As long as we are relying on markets to uh, deliver this essential infrastructure. Um, and I and I think that I'm, I'm very enthusiastic about models in which a city might be able to build an open access network that serves large swaths of the population, allows for competition, and delivers some level of free service for qualifying households. I think the economics are all there that that could all work out quite well. Uh, but uh, we have some work to do before we see that enacted, I think. Yeah. So speaking of which, let's talk about citywide investments into uh, into open infrastructure. Uh, we wanted to update people on West Des Moines, which is a city we've talked about before, uh, entered into a partnership with Google Fiber, where the city uh, builds a conduit system that touches every resident. Uh, one of the things that Google Fiber has insisted upon in their contract dealings with public-private partnerships is that no one is left out, everyone is served. And uh, so Google Fiber then commits to 20 years of revenues that pay for a substantial part of that system. The city can then use it to attract other, uh, uh, other ISPs as well as to do smart city applications and things like that. Uh, it's a really good deal. Uh, frankly, Google Fiber would be interested in doing that in more places. Everything that I've heard suggests that, but a lot of cities don't have the vision that West Des Moines has. 
And I think too many cities still think that they can get something for nothing. And, you know, they might actually get a Google Fiber investment, but at that point, Google Fiber is going to approach it like a, more of a traditional ISP uh, because it's only with that public buy-in that you can really make sure there's universal access. So, um, Sean, what, what, what do you, what's something that you love about uh, West Des Moines? To me, it, the reason why I like the story so much is because they focused on the, you know, building this open access conduit, which kind of highlights, I think, and separates out the the, the infrastructure from the 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 provision of services. And so, you know, in some communities, folks get a little leery of, you know, you know, what they would consider to be government-run networks or, you know, municipalities being involved in being, you know, internet service providers. Although there's plenty of uh, success stories where that where that works well. But in this case, they said, look, let's build the infrastructure. And, and they've done it in such a way, by the way, without using grant funds, but bond, uh, they bonded for this. And it's going to bring the city revenue in time. Um, and as it invites uh, private ISPs to uh, access that conduit, it you know creates the kind of market conditions that drive down costs for end users. So, so I, I like this as an example of a city focusing on what they do well in many instances, which is build the actual, you know, necessary infrastructure and then create the conditions for, you know, ISPs, including lowering the uh, the barrier of entry for smaller and local ISPs to to come in and, and compete on price and service. Yeah, it's a super uh, fascinating story. Again, you can find it at communitynets.org. Um, so we originally wrote about this decision that they made the embarkation on it in July, 2020. And they've made a lot of progress over the, the last two, I guess it'd be two and a half years. Um, looks like they are, so um, this is a, a roughly $60 million project. Uh, it looks like they are done with about seven of their nine phase areas uh, or whatever you want to call it. Um, might be 40 or 50% of the city by geography. looks like, um, work so far has been centered in the northern half of the city and uh, but they've got a goal to complete the whole thing by the end of 2023 and so uh you know they set a goal in 2016 that everybody that that 80 percent of the city would have access to gigabit speeds by 2026 if they get done with this by the end of 2023 they're going to be uh well ahead of schedule and you know not only is google fiber uh buying into the network but they've also got a local provider that they've um that is is looking to sign on to expand service and um, bring more competition to the area. And and then, you know, wouldn't you know it, but Mediacom has also agreed after a little while that they're uh, begrudgingly going to uh, participate in the network. Yeah, I think Mediacom might say that uh, more than 80% of the city has access to a gigabit from Mediacom already. Uh, I don't know uh, if they would say that. I don't know exactly where the, where the footprint is. Uh, I would guess they might. Um, Mediacom had... Uh, sued to block this deal, saying that the way it was structured in terms of, you know, I would say a non-traditional approach. I'm not an expert in municipal finance as much as I like to pretend here and there that I am. Um, and they, I believe they did a single tax increment financing district in order to uh, to, to borrow against, uh, which is uh, something that Mediacom thought would be uh, perhaps vulnerable to a court challenge, and that did not happen. And then Mediacom decided to come in and compete. And I'm very curious to see what happens. Uh, I would say that Mediacom does not have a great reputation throughout Iowa as a reliable provider. Uh, we hear a lot of complaints. 
but their services might be much higher quality in West Des Moines now because of this network. So I'm very curious to see what happens there. And for people who like more information, uh, we did do a Community Broadband Bits podcast interview with them back episode 426 in September of 2020. One of the things that we'll talk about in, in our last tease, perhaps for the next segment, is uh, that uh, we're the Community Broadband Bits podcast feed is, has had a couple of changes, and you should be able to find that old episode there. Uh, but if you can't right away, we're still working out a few glitches, and all of the old episodes of the Community Broadband Bits podcast will soon be available uh, at the feed where hopefully you found this one. So I, I really want to get West Des Moines back on the show to get an update. I know that a couple of things have changed in terms of how they laid it out. I think originally they were going to run conduit to every home that was city owned. And I think that did not happen. So I want to learn more about that. Uh, but I would say, understand that I just said that with about 80% certainty. I'm not hundred percent certain on that. So uh, we do want to get more details and get more in depth on that as we move forward good community broadband activity going on in Iowa, including in Waterloo. Yes. Yeah. Waterloo also moving forward. Uh, they approved uh, general obligation bonds to fund a part of the uh, citywide municipal fiber network that they are starting to work on. I think they're going to have shovels in the ground this year. Mm -hmm. uh, seems a little hard to imagine right now, given the depth of snow, but <laughs> well, I don't even know in Iowa, they might be much better off than, uh, than we are in terms of, of being out of the frost soon. But um, but yeah, that's a, it's a really big deal. Waterloo is the sister city to Cedar Falls, which has had exceptionally high quality internet access for more than 25 years due to the municipal utility there. And so very curious to see what happens with Waterloo. But I think a reminder that um, when presented with with an opportunity. In this case, citizens uh, came out and voted. It was a special election. It looked like it was low turnout to me, but nonetheless, I think they had a, for in, by Iowa law, I think you need 60% support and they blew that away uh, yeah. in terms of the support that they had. Yeah. Well, the thing I like about the Waterloo, uh, what's going on in Waterloo, as well as in uh, West Des Moines, is that it, it's two examples of cities really taking action. They and, and, and two things to note, too, because I think a lot of times folks think, well, if we can't get access to any of the federal grant dollars through BEAD or, or, or rescue plan funds, then there's no hope to finance. In both of these instances, they're not relying on rescue plan funds or BEAD dollars to build these networks. They're, it's important enough to make that investment using uh, city funds. And then also, you know, lo and behold, even though Waterloo hasn't built out that network yet, already um and and by the way building it because as you alluded to earlier mediacom and i think CenturyLink is the other provider in the area where it had been so horrible for so long that folks just finally just got fed up and said you know let's do it ourselves but i believe the regional isp metronet who also operates a bit in that area all of a sudden lo and behold they're now building a 24 million dollar gigabit capable fiber network so you, you know you see what happens when you when when cities get serious and and start to make uh, strides towards you know creating a market that really delivers the services that they need. It suddenly inspires the national providers who drag their feet or shrug their shoulders or say no to really want to do something because they're worried about you know losing market share. That brings to mind something that's important, which is uh, you'll know it's more than a hundred million dollars to build all of Waterloo, and Metronet is going to do twenty four million dollars. Metronet has this habit of just coming in and being like, we're going to go for the wealthiest areas We're we're going to build in some cases, they'll build 80% of the city in some cases, much less. But uh, this is not a community solution if you care about connecting everyone. And, and I think the places where Metronet goes, 
Uh, it might be a few years of good service, but I think Metronet's on its way to becoming just the, uh, another national monopoly that doesn't have good service. So I'm deeply concerned about their future when I look at the way they operate. Um, and the other thing was, Sean, when you were saying that, it reminded me in the interview last week, Joan Engebritson talking about 10 years ago, people would often say if you lived in a rural area, well, if you want better Internet access, you should just move. I don't think we're that far away from people saying I'm in a city and I'm stuck with this like cable monopoly that's overcharging me. I got to move to a rural area where a co-op or a local family owned business has done a good job investing. And like, I got to get my fiber out there. You're right. It's, it's, it's this weird irony where it's almost like the tables have turned. I mean, just here, in, I mean, in Massachusetts, the, you know, there's tiny communities of three, four, 500, 700 people in Western Massachusetts that have better connectivity than folks in Boston do. And certainly better than you have on Cape Cod. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know you're not in Hyannis, but I don't think they have it that much better there either. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> so the least... last thing we're going to we're going to talk about here is just communitynets.org. Uh, it rolls off the tongue. Uh, you know, I think uh, there's a little less ambiguity than muninetworks.org. Uh, it's something that uh, we registered uh, a long time ago. I registered community nets and we felt we should start using it because uh, so much of the coverage we do is not actually just focused on municipal networks. We want to continue that work. That is core to, I think, our analysis is the need for cities to be involved in this, whether that's in a uh, municipal network, a public-private partnership, um, some kind of of smart local planning uh, to do it. But there's a lot of work that's going on by co-ops. There's local companies that are doing good things that are not rent-seeking. They're they're not just trying to maximize profits. They're trying to to make an investment that will help the community. So we want to make sure people have a better sense that we're interested in all of that. So uh, we've, we've gone through a new website. Uh, what are some of the top lines, Rye, that you want people to know about under in the new site? The same DNA that has been muninetworks.org for the last 15 years is still there. There's still an emphasis on um, smart city investments for any number of reasons, increasing competition and local internet choice. There's still a, an emphasis on clear-eyed practical advice and uh, report writing. How clear are my eyes? <laughs> I don't I know. Think... <laughs> Some of it's clear-eyed. <laughs> There's uh, so all the all the pro the research projects that we've always done. The the kind of uh, the big hits will will continue to live there. Um, and you know it should be theoretically um, a little easier to navigate at least uh, for for folks who either are visiting for the. 20th time that month or for the first time ever. Um, so we've got uh, dedicated homes for not only the, you know, the stories and the case studies that we have and will continue to write, but uh, the reports and then also the some of the trackers and dashboards that we started experimenting with over the last 18 months or so. It's It's all there and should be easy to find. And we are still working on populating it with better content. Some of these new pages that we have created, I think it's worth noting that we are open to people's ideas of what should be there. Right now, the tags are not surfaced, but that is something that we are working on resolving to try to make that more useful. Uh, people that have things that they might think we should do, uh, you can write to Rye directly, ry at ilsr.org, and, uh, and, and he will be the one who is um, you know, sorting through that to make sure that uh, we're meeting the needs of people who are out there. We're really interested in in doing the things that will make, you know, your lives easier to to make these local investments and those things work. So, um, 
you know, we're trying to make this friendlier to everyone. And I feel like, you know, Ryan, Sean, you made this happen. And I'm excited that we have it. Uh, there's a ton of work that went into a getting Drupal upgraded, which is the content management system we've long used, uh, past a major hump from eight to nine. And, um, and so future upgrades will be much less painful. But this was a multi-year painful effort that you oversaw. So uh, I'm deeply thankful for that. Sean, yes, what are some of the things you're you're happy about? Well, that that well, the first thing I'm happy about is that Rye, Rye bore the brunt of that pain, and um, all the more reason to send any complaints uh, to Rye and 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 praise you can send to my email. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, actually, overall, I mean, I think the look of the site is cleaner. It's is I think it's easier to find things. Um, it's it's a little brighter. Um, and so, um, I'm just really most happy that we are beyond, uh, the launch date. And while there's, you know, a little bit more, you know, painting and, and, and things that we need to do, uh, um, it's, it's, it's been working like a charm. Yeah. So one of the things that we did upgrade then too, is the podcast feeds, uh, we'll be using a new system. Uh, we're using transistor.fm and really happy with it so far. Uh, should give us some new analytics for, for many of you, nothing will change, uh, from our end. It'll enable a, a player that I think will be a bit better for us, uh, for people that want to embed the show on your own websites or things like that. That's now entirely possible. And we strongly encourage that take our shows, embed them anywhere, please. One thing I would be, it, it, it would be bad on my part not to mention, especially being the the comms guy on, on our team, which is that the uh, the tabs, the about us, the news and media, community networks, where to start, et cetera, I think are much more geared to answering questions that people come to the website for. Uh, if you want to dive a little bit deeper onto some things, and one thing in particular on the news and media, on, on that drop-down menu, there's a tab for the press center. And so if there's any journalists that are listening that come to our website or call on us for interviews, I highly suggest going to that press center page because there's some there, there's some key facts and 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 pointers on that page that I think will help journalists better cover these issues in their communities. Right. One of the other things that we're doing, because now we have some free time on our hands, as if, uh, <laughs> is <laughs> we're, so, we're excited to go to Net Inclusion, uh, the uh, National Digital Inclusion Alliance event next week. We're kicking off yet another podcast series. If you want to hear more of my voice, Sean's voice, Deanne's voice, maybe occasionally Rye's voice, uh, we're going to be doing live interviews at events that we go to more often now, and then running those on the feed of a show that we're calling Building for Digital Equity. Uh, so this will go hand in hand with our live stream events, which we'll be doing more of. We'll be announcing the date for our uh, second quarter show for Building for Digital Equity soon. But we're going to have a podcast feed. That podcast feed could like you know be overflowing for a little while where we might do two episodes a week for several weeks for like, you know, eight weeks, maybe. And then it might go quiet for a few weeks while we get to another event and do more interviews. So it's going to be a little bit more intermittent. It's going to be shorter shows. It's going to be, I think, tighter interviews, uh, you know, focused on what people are doing locally. Uh, and they're mostly going to be shows that we're recording at live events. So if you're going to net inclusion, uh, look us up. We're going to be at a table near the ballroom doing those interviews, uh, you know, make monkey noises in the background, maybe. And, and you might get into the you hear that in the background of one of them. 
So, um, uh, but we're gonna we're gonna have a good time with that show, and uh, it's just the yet another step toward our media empire and community broadband. Right, and if this show happens to come out on Tuesday, the following day is the uh, the friendly spot, Ice House, the Connect This special show, and. Yes. Yeah. So Wednesday night, we're doing a special episode of Connect This. That reminds me, Rye, we need you to schedule that and promote it so people will be in the chat room, even if they can't be there in person in San Antonio. But we are going to do a live show in San Antonio. And if that goes well, uh, which it will, because we're going to have Kim McKinley, Angela Seifer, and probably someone else, as well as other rotating guests, uh, we will do more of the Connect This live shows. So that will be coming uh, probably at broadband communities and maybe at some of the other great conferences that uh, we're able to to go to. Um, so yeah, there's a, a bunch of stuff coming. We have ideas always open to other people's ideas. So as we close out, Rye, is there anything else you want to, you want to highlight? Um, I think the only thing worth mentioning is that, uh, some of the live streamed events through net inclusion will be, uh, so the, the main place to find those will be through, uh, NDIA's, um, website and social media and the channels that they have set up. But, uh, we will also be hosting some of those, uh, live streams on our social media, on Twitter, on LinkedIn, and um, uh, YouTube and Facebook as well. So excellent. Those I, would prim primarily be Wednesday and Thursday. And yes, we'll be using the same StreamYard platform that we use for Connect This. And uh, and for people who can't be there, it'd be really great to tune in and, and check out some of those sessions. I'm really looking forward to San Antonio. It's uh, February in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Um, it's actually been like about 40, 50 degrees, so nothing like it is in Minnesota. But still, it'd be nice to be feel some of that nice weather in San Antonio. Speak for yourself, man. I'm I'm getting out of here. I'm going to go sledding in about an hour. So, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you know, be careful out there because you're you know we're going to need you for that. Connect this. Right. Show. Why gonna was Chris in the hospital rather than in that inclusion? <laughs> we're going to need you to be ambulatory. <laughs> Fortunately, Next. for people who think there might be any danger, welcome to Minnesota Hills. <laughs> I won't be going very far. <laughs> And then so, you're also going to be doing um, karaoke out here, right? No. Oh, no. No, yeah. definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> that will not be happening. Uh, great to great to have both of you on the show uh, once again. And uh, looking forward to seeing everyone soon uh, at an event at Net Inclusion or another one, I hope. Uh, but, uh, oh, last thing uh, is uh, before we move the show, we check the stats one last time. I don't get too obsessed over stats, but in the life of uh, community broadband bits at that feed, uh, which was, I think, on the order of six or seven years, uh, you know, which is a good, let's say 300 some episodes. We had 150,000 uh, listenings of the show. So that's pretty special. Thank you, everyone who stuck with us, who sees a lot of value in this and is using it to make a better world. Uh, it's really great. And we look forward to continuing that. Have a great one, everyone. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadband bits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at Muni Networks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ILSR.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby, 
for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was the Community Broadband Bits Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.